lovely to be with you tonight and lovely to be with you for what is a special occasion because the guy we've got tonight is quite exceptional, part of our history and we're proud of that. A guy that was in at the birth of the entertainers. Can you remember when we were actually entertainers? It was wonderful, wasn't it? Wonderful. Those days will come back, baby. Don't worry about it. Those days will come back. Yeah. This guy was in at the birth of the entertainers. He went on to play for Chelsea because, for family reasons, he had to leave here. He went with our blessing. He played in the FA Cup final for Chelsea. He played in the European Cup Winners' Cup semi-final for Chelsea. He then had a magnificent career in broadcasting. But we're looking at his autobiography tonight, which is from pitch to pulpit. And it's quite an extraordinary story that no one else in football, I think, could write and has experienced it. It's quite astonishing. He'll be telling us all about it. He's come from Calgary in Canada to be with us tonight. As far as I'm concerned, he's come home. Welcome back, Gavin Peacock. Thanks, Gibbo. Thank you. Lovely. How are we doing here? And just in case you're wondering, you think we're both auditioning for Peaky Blinders. Peaky Blinders. Which, in fact, we are. We're not going to match them all. We're going to go and play Peaky Blinders. I'm wearing it in case there's a woodpecker flying around. You know, <laughs> you've, got, you can't be, you've got to be careful. Uh, lovely to have you with us, my friend. Um, fascinating, fascinating life. And... Uh, an amazing start to your career in football because your family was steeped in football, Dad. Yes. And unbelievably, considering we think South London, London, etc., 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 Dad was from South Shields, so that when you come to play for Newcastle, you were in some ways coming home. Yeah, very, very much so, uh, Gibbo. And uh, I just like to say, you know, it's just always great to be to be back here, seeing old friends, old faces. Um, brought my wife Amanda uh, with me. We, we're staying in, in Durham City, actually, at the hotel, the, ro the, Royal, the Royal County Hotel. We lived in Durham um, for the time that I played for, for Newcastle, and, and she has not been back up here for now for 20 plus years. And uh, so it's just been a real uh, emotional and nostalgic time for us to be back in Durham, our old stomping ground, and, and being part of, of such a a special time at, at the club but uh, yeah for, for me I, I growing up in a footballing family uh, dad played for Charlton Athletic my dad Keith uh, he played for 17 years for Charlton he's the appeared more times than any outfield player in Charlton's history the only other player that has appeared more than him is Sam Bartram and he's a goalkeeper um, and other things that my dad is remembered for is that uh, he was the first substitute uh, ever used in English league football so, um, I, yes, yeah, yeah. So, so I always say back in the day uh, when men were men and it was 11 v 11 and if you broke a leg you just ran it off because there's no sub on the bench, right? Absolutely. Which is proper, like none of this kind of squad game thing. Um, and then the, the, they, they, they decided we're going to introduce the 12th man and on the day in 1965, uh, Charlton were playing, I think, Bolton at home in August of 65 and my dad was number 12, he was on the bench 
and there was an injury and he got on and he was clocked. First substitute ever used in English football and it's actually a trivial pursuit question. He hates it because he says, I play more times than any outfield player in Charlton's history and I get remembered for not being good enough to be in the starting lineup on that particular day. I was a number 12. But, uh, but you know, he, Dad was great, you know, I had a, a lovely stable home and, and uh, with my dad being captain of Charlton and, and just having that example, plus his coaching and encouragement, um, it was really good. But uh, the first kit I actually ever had was a Newcastle kit. And uh, quite right, too. You, you see me in the book, I've got a picture yeah. uh, up when we would come up here because my, my nan and granddad, my, my granddad Tom and my nan Lydia from South Shields, um, so we'd come up to, me, to, to see family. We've got my, my Uncle Jim and Auntie Judy here, my cousin Simon still. So we've got plenty of family up here. So we'd come up for holidays. And I, you know, I got Super Mac T-shirt. And, uh, and uh, I, I mean, I'm going to be on his table tomorrow at the game. Yeah, Super Mac's my hero. Um, and, 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 uh, and I had the, the Newcastle strip, and there's a little picture in the book, me with my cousins, and I'm like a mini, mini professional footballer at age sort of six years old. Who knows that... Who would have known that a decade or so later I was going to captain the team and, and, and get us to the Premiership? And, and Grandad saw you do that at home. Yeah, the, the, the day I signed for Newcastle, my Grandad Tom, uh, it was an emotional uh, moment for him. And uh, he said to me, um, he said, uh, if you sweat blood for their team, he said, those fans will forgive you many mistakes on the field. They just need to know that when you pull on that black and white shirt, that you will go and, and, and die for the team. Because if they could do it, they would. And I always remember those words. And, uh, and I think... the Well, certainly is. Yeah. And um, so I think I had that attitude. And... And the fans did forgive me many mistakes, and then I hope I did a few good things on the field as well. Um, but then, and we'll, we will talk about it, but yeah. uh, as we go on, I'll mention my granddad when we talk about other things. Uh, I mean, the, the early days coming from a football family, yeah. you know, you think of the, the, the red naps and the lampposts, it's sort of in the blood. Mm. Um, and you hit the floor running, you were picked for England boys, mm. um, and I'm Everyone that ever plays for England boys just signed up for a league club because yeah. that's what league clubs do and it's what the kids want. Mm. Your dad being shrewder because he was in the game, mm. he didn't allow you to sign for him. So Correct. you end up virtually the only player in the England boys squad that isn't yep. with a league club, which is wonderful because that day and everybody wants you. Exactly. It was, it was a good move from my dad. I thought I was playing enough football at the time and to then sign as a schoolboy uh, for a professional club and add games to that would have been actually a hindrance rather than a help and so I, age 15 playing for England schoolboys I was actually in the uh, in the squad with Ian Bogey from from Newcastle uh, Tony Nesbitt as well I mean you know older folks may remember those names uh, a couple of Geordie boys there who were always good fun very talented players but yeah everyone was signed and so as an England schoolboy then Every club in the country uh, wanted me, um, and so there were clubs. You know, there were the, the small clubs like Liverpool and you know, and, and, and Tottenham. And, uh, hey, hey! I don't know what you're laughing at. He's just got it right. Absolutely. But Liverpool quite seriously did, wasn't Yeah, they were interested. Aston Villa, Tottenham, uh, Arsenal, um, and and QPR. 
I chose in the end because obviously he was a London London boy, but the, the manager was Terry Venables. And they were in the top flight, so Terry was a bright young manager that had the plastic pitch, first plastic pitch oh, on the top flight. Yeah. And they had some players as well. The Tony Curry, uh, jo John Gregory, uh, Clive Allen, um, some really good players. Top players. And they were a club that brought young players through. So I thought I'd have a good chance of coming through under Venables at QPR. Ended up signing. You lived at home Yep. Lived at home, travelled into London from there. I left school at 16 after my GCSEs and, and I was a pro. I mean, you made it every, what, 19 with QPR? Yes. Yeah. Um, and in the teams, you would be as yeah. a boy, but one of the problems, and you're absolutely right, everybody I talk to who's an ex-player, I was just talking to the supermarket today about a totally different situation, and he's saying, when you're young, you've got to play. There's some players spend a year out, yeah. it, be it injury or be it that they're not selected, and it, you can stagnate your growth, you've got to keep playing competitive football. Yeah. And you decided you needed that, didn't you? But I mean, having decided that, and I think this is a great part of the story, because how often does this happen? Having decided that, you tapped to go to a club by your own dad over a week of it, on a morning because he's manager German. Can you imagine that? I mean, there should be a law against that being by your old man. I mean, can you be on the QBR to say you could ask you? Yeah, can you tell the story? Yeah, for sure. Um, so Jim Smith, so Venables left and then Jim Smith came in. Of course, Jim was manager up here. And, yeah. um, and Jim gave me my first team debut. Uh, you know, he was a growler and he, uh, and he was a gruff kind of guy at times. But he, had a, he actually knew football and he, he, took, yes, he, a, he, he took a gamble on, on younger players, got me in, into the first team. And I was doing all right. And England under-19s by then and signed a new contract. But, as you say, I was in and out of the team, only two subs in those days as well, so difficult to even make the bench sometimes. And they weren't playing me in my right position. I wanted to play central midfield and attacking. And they were playing me out wide quite a bit. So, you know, I was thinking, maybe I need to get somewhere, even on loan, where I can kind of play regularly here, week in and week out. Living at home at the time, by this time, my father's retired from playing, and now he's, a, he's the manager of Gillingham Football Club. Um, and, and, and my dad, you know, he, he brought through players. Well, Steve Bruce was a 19-year-old when I was there. Was very, very, very uh, Steve Bruce, the player. The, the player. And, and, yeah, and, then, and, he, and, and he, was a he was a lion heart of a player. Tony Cascarino, other players like that. And, um, and so I'm sort of sitting at breakfast one morning and dad's looking at me and he's about to go to work to Gillingham and I'm about to get on the train to go West London to train at QPR and, uh, and he's gone, you know, he's got a problem in midfield, I've got a couple of injuries, he says, um, curse to me, he said, the solution might be sitting opposite me at the breakfast table here, he said, how do you fancy coming to Gillingham? But was that like, your mum sitting opposite him? Yeah. She may have done a better job than me, actually. Um, and uh, I said, yeah, I'm up for that, Dad. And so he rang Jim. Uh, they were friends, because they knew each other when yes, Jim was at Oxford days. And I ended up going on loan to, uh, to Gillingham, playing for my dad, and I ended up signing there. Took a gamble to go down a couple of divisions to come back up again, but to develop my game and play in week in and week out. Um, and it was, it was quite the thing, because then there's a challenge of playing for your dad. 
Yeah. Well, that that can be tough. Mm. That both with the cloud and you wondering about that, that how does that handle that? Correct. And uh, also with the other players. And I, I talk about this a bit in the book, you know, it's a difficult thing. I mean, it's been done. Uh, Jamie Redknapp did it with Harry Redknapp, obviously Brian Clough, Nigel Clough. Um, and I think you, um, my dad said to me, he said, I'll give you two bad games and then I'll drop you. He said, and I'll, he said I, won't, I won't be praising you even as much as the other players because I can't be seen to give you any favoritism at all. Um, but I think it, we worked it quite well. And I think uh, you have to be one of the better players in the team. Otherwise, if you're struggling, the, the, the other lads aren't going to oh, have it. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So it was, good. it was a good experience. And I, I enjoyed my time at Priestfield. And I really developed as a player. You played up to about eight games? Correct, yeah. You know your stats, don't you? Well, I you could get a, jo you could get a job in journalism. <laughs> no, no. You, you take it far too far. Mike Ashley, you said I could never get a job. Oh, don't. Yeah. <laughs> great that you're back. Right. Uh, oh, I'll tell you what, pal. This is my club and their club. It's yeah. one yeah. club. Yeah. He just had temporary transport. Yeah. Yeah. Look, looking at when you were doing, you were playing your, your best position, playing regularly, but having the extra pressure, Gavin, and being the boss's son. Yeah. If you made the right stuff, that does make you develop. You can develop quickly, I would have thought. Yeah, yes, yes uh, I think that was that's correct. You know, not only playing every week, but actually playing under that particular pressure, um, and maybe having the wisdom to navigate it with the other players, um, really stood me in good stead. Um, Dad didn't stay there uh, forever. I ended up leaving a year later, and Harry Redknapp bought me for a couple of club records. In, a, in terms of football education, mm. going to then play for Harry is not a bad move because uh, he was a top, top manager that knew the game and he was really getting into his right and born out at the, the time. Well, it's interesting because my dad advised me on uh, very much on managers, you know, like signed for QPR, there's Terry Venables there. And then there were, t there were a lot of teams interested in me at Gillingham and... Uh, and it, Bournemouth, not the biggest team to sign for, but he said, Harry Redknapp, bright manager, he's going to go all the way, and he's a football, football guy through and through, signed for him. So I ended up signing uh, for, for Harry. Amanda and I literally just got, got married. Um, and, uh, well, um, before you signed, you were, you were I, I signed, down there. I signed for, for Harry in the, in the summer. We got married just a few weeks later at the beginning of the season. And she didn't know, poor girl didn't know what uh, she'd let herself in, in for. Uh, Is out. that with Bournemouth or you? <laughs> <laughs> with marrying a footballer. We, yeah, we, we, yeah, met, we, we met at night school. Okay, so I was playing for, for QPR. And I, I thought, again, dad giving good advice and, and my mum too. Like, you could get injured carry on with a bit of your education because you didn't do your A-levels. So I did English one year, second year I choose history. Uh, first night uh, I walk into the, the history uh, night class, um, the only space uh, left at the table uh, was filled by my, my future wife, Amanda. She came in late, she sat down, I thought, I like her smile, I'm going to chat to her at the break. Uh, she says, "Should have been concentrating on the lesson." Uh, yeah, I know. I was kind of distracted. I never ended up taking the exam. But I got a wife out of it. And then she says to me, um, 
She says, oh, what do you do then? So I thought, I got this in the bag, a eh? professional footballer. It's going to get the girl every time, right? I said, oh, I'm a professional footballer. She went, oh, I don't really like football at all. <laughs> and, oh, dear, I thought, oh, no, I'm being humbled here. Um, but then, a challenge. Yeah, it was a challenge. But then she liked me for my, myself. See? So, so anyway, a couple of years later, we, we, we do get married. And I, I, this is the wedding weekend. Play Blackburn at home uh, against, uh, for Bournemouth. I score my first goal. Um, drive back to Kent from Bournemouth on, on the Saturday night, uh, meet up with my dad and a few friends for kind of a, a, a drink before the, the wedding, uh, married Amanda the ne next day, had our wedding reception at Dartford Football Club, uh, of all things, pictures on the pit, on the field, by the goal and everything. She's got bridesmaids peeking around the goalpost. Then she has to drive me back halfway down the M3, we stayed our wedding night on a, at a hotel on the M3 on the Sunday night, drove me to training the next morning because we were playing Port Vale at home on the Tuesday. Harry wouldn't give me a day off. And this was the life that she'd signed up for. No honeymoon until about 10 months later. And this was a lady that didn't like football. That's a lady. And, yeah. Hey, she's, she's still here. Yeah, 30, 32 years now. Lovely story, lovely story. I mean, the Bournemouth transfer gathering, when you think about it, you say, okay, you know, you're going, he's chilling on Mr. Bournemouth, but it was 250,000, and that was a, a club record, both for the receiver and the, the, the club paying it. Yeah, it? yeah, it was. It was a significant fee. So there was a little bit of pressure. Ian Bishop had been the star player for Bournemouth as well. He just got a big move to Manchester City. So I was going in to kind of replace him. And, uh, and yeah, and I was, you know, I was only 21. Um, so a bit of pressure down there. And, you know, new married life, new area. So we took a few months to settle. Um, but, Beautiful area. But a lovely area. And I enjoyed, I enjoyed playing for Harry. Um, Unfortunately, during that time, I don't know if you remember, it was the, the, after the first season there, it was uh, Italia 90, and uh, oh, yes. Harry was in a deadly, well, a deadly car crash because our chief yes, executive, Brian Tyler, died. Now, I forgot about that. Yes, yeah, was. Harry was in Italy, um, hooked up to monitors and everything, and, and we weren't sure whether he'd survive. And it, it brought home, you know, perspective again in, in life and uh, that, that football wasn't everything and um, and then he came back the next season brilliantly recovered and and started to kind of work with the team again and after a few months obviously I left for Newcastle. There was a little jolly boy did quite well with Italian and he was man. Oh yes. Who was he again man? We've not had a player like him since that, and that's been one of the reasons in my opinion we've obviously got to the final this past few months, but someone like uh, Paul Gascoigne has not been found. With that power, ah. with that power, the ability to beat people and score goals, just a, just a magical player. Well, wonderful, wonderful player. And God bless him for everything he did for this club and for football. And all wishing very much the best in the rest of his career. Top, top, top player. Newcastle United came in, you signed for Newcastle. How lucky can you get, Pat? Newcastle United came in for you, mate. That was that. That's not bad. But it was, while we always associate you with hindsight, is in at the birth of the entertainers and the captain decided, went up and we won takeoff. It wasn't KK that bought you, you were bought before that. Was it Jim Paul Eagle? Yeah. It was Paul Yeah. How did that come about? How did you find out about it? And what were your feelings considering Dad's background? Yeah. Um, 
it was tra training day, normal training day at Bournemouth, and Harry, uh, Harry Redknapp was on his phone, and uh, he's often on his phone. Uh, and he's either doing a deal, doing a deal on a player, or making a bet on the dogs or the horses. So I was wondering what was going on there, and he's looking at me and thinking, well, it could be a, a player here. He walked up to me after training, and he said, Gavin, he said, uh, Newcastle United have come in for you. And that's all I heard, because as soon as he said that, I thought, this is the club, and this is what I've been waiting for. I knew, I knew Jim, Jim was there, so Jim, who'd given me my debut as a 19-year-old, he'd kept a track on me, seen my development. Two or three years later, um, he comes in, and uh, I went home to Amanda. Like, we just bought, like you say, Bournemouth, lovely place. We just bought our first house, got it all nice and everything. And I came home and said, Amanda, I said, Newcastle United are coming for me. I said, and we've got to move. And she just burst into tears and she went, Newcastle? Where's, where's Newcastle? I said, it's up north and it's cold. I said, but it's a great club and we're going to go. And uh, anyway, she was brilliant. Amanda told me afterwards, she, just here, she says it was tears of joy. Tears of joy, yeah. 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 Our own well, you ask her and she'll tell you these were the three of the happiest years that she's ever spent up here, so tremendous, there you go. Tremendous, tremendous. But you right here, in, when you think in terms of a whole career, a relatively short period here, yeah. but you went through three managers. Didn't yeah. You had the Ball Eagle, you had Oshie, and then you had KK. Yeah. Um, can you compare them, I know it's perhaps hard to say, but they, yep. to me on the outside and you on the inside, yep. they're different guys. Yes. How did you find Yeah, so I arrived at Newcastle and I, I knew, obviously, I was uh, at a big club. I, I'm coming home in terms of family up here and straight away, I just felt, and my wife, you just felt at home. Um, and Jim was under pressure because you, the club had got to the playoffs the year before, lost against Sunderland. Against Sunderland, yeah. Yeah, didn't mention it. Sorry about that. I was going to say, I knew this evening would get spoiled sometime. <laughs> and that's, that's it. Well, moving on quickly then. Um, <laughs> under a bit of pressure. Some big players in terms of personalities Roy Aitken, Mark McGee, Mickey, Mickey Quinn, Quinn, John Burridge, one of the great characters oh, of the, uh, of the game. Um, Ray, Ray Ranson said to me, I came to the ground, uh, to the main ground, I, I came up here, Jim Smith was about to do the deal with me, and uh, Ray Ranson said, just sign, sign for this club, he said, because if it takes off, he said it'll be electric, and uh, I, I, I don't know if I've told you that, that um, Jim had agreed with me the day before to increase my wages and give me a three-year deal and a, and a nice signing on fee, so he said, come back up here to Newcastle overnight, he said, we'll do the deal the next day at the, at the main ground. So I get to the main ground, and Jim says, go on in the office over there, he says, wait for me. He's come back in five minutes later, he said, uh, oh, I've spoken to the board and they think I've offered you too much money. Oh, oh yeah, he says, uh, they've, offered me, they've offered you too much money. He said, we're going to have to uh, do something, reduce it. And I'm thinking, like, young lad, they've got me in the office here. You know, Newcastle, I'm just going to sign for the reduced fee. So what am I going to do? I've, I've, I've rung my dad, no answer. He's on the training field with, with Gillingham. I, I rang the PFA. They didn't give too much help on it. So I thought, OK. Jim came back in. I said, Jim, I will sign for 
this club at your reduced wages, but I'll only sign for 18 months, not three years. Now, it's a real risk again, yeah? yeah? Because if I get injured, you know, I'm newly married, I've got no security. Um, and he went, done, do the deal. Turned out to be the best deal I ever signed because a year later, I did well, right? A year later, Newcastle wanted to, sure. you know, all these clubs wanted me. So, um, are you saying, Gavin, though, that you didn't have an agent with you? No agent, no agent. No. You would only come in the last minute to sign the papers. Yeah, no agent at all dealt with Jim. My dad was in all of my deals. My of dad knew, he knew everyone, right? And um, so it was a very different situation. So I ended up signing. So Jim was under pressure. I, I could sense the other players were, but I didn't feel it because I was 22 years old. Um, the pressure wasn't really on me. I got off to a good start on the field. I felt the fans liked me and I liked them. And so I kind of rode through the pressure a little bit. Jim got the sack, in came Ozzy. Ozzy pulled me aside, first day of training, and he really liked me when he was Swindon manager. He said, he said, you're like a diamond. He said, I need to polish a few rough edges of you. He said, and he played me in the diamond system at the head of the diamond behind the front two. And under Ozzy, who was, uh, as you know, a lovely man, oh, very well-liked here. Wonderful man. Very loved by the players. Loved by the players, loved by the fans. Brought a lot of young players through. You know, the, the, the Lee Clarks, the, the Howies, and uh, uh, Steve Watsons, and, 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 and myself being fairly young, old, oldest of that bunch. Um, but he let us play with freedom. And he, he let me play with freedom. And of course, Ozzy was, he was Maradona's mentor. This is like Ozzy who won the World Cup. Maradona, like, yeah. Maradona looked up to, to, to Ozzy. So you're talking about someone with immense knowledge of football, great belief, and wanted to produce the kind of football that the Geordie fans, he knew they needed, and Ozzy wanted to play. Um, but the thing with, with Ozzy was we had all these youngsters coming through, but we, didn't, we weren't strong enough defensively. So, you know, we'd, we'd lose 4-3 or something like that. Entertaining game. And that's what it was. It was entertainers, <laughs> but the other side won. Yes. 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 Which can only go on so long. Yeah. Um, of course. And of course, as well, Gavin, did you feel at the time, because Ozzy was operating as a takeover yeah. was going through with John Hall. John Hall. In these days, takeovers are like that. Yeah. You know, one day Mike Ashley's in charge and the next day somebody else is. But yeah. in those days, you couldn't take over like that. No. It took a while to buy shares from each individual. Yes. Yeah. So it took a long, long while. And he was working, and Jim was initially right at the end against the backdrop of, of that takeover. Yeah. Were you aware of that and did it make any uncertainty? We were aware of it as players. You're always aware of what's going on uh, in the background. I think because we had a pretty young squad, you know, in, when you're young, you, don't, you kind of, those, these things kind of roll off your back a bit easier. But obviously the manager w w was feeling the pressure. And I think, it, you know, Ozzy was such a, nice, a lovely fella as well, because the, and the players loved him, like Clark, Lee Clark and Ozzy, like, you know, Clark, he was like a son to Ozzy, you know, they'd mess about on the training ground, they'd be jabbing each other and all of this. Yeah. Ozzy was difficult to understand, mind, because oh. a heavy, heavy, heavy accent, Argentinian yeah. accent, and um, he would say, uh, he, he, he wouldn't say, if he tried to say obviously, it would come across obli, <laughs> obli. And uh, we're playing at Barnsley one day, and the, the lads are sitting there, and there's a, he's getting ready for the team talk. And it was, the pitch was really kind of uh, uneven and hard. 
and we've been warming up, and it's like going all over the place. And uh, he said, uh, "Boys, uh, today uh, it'll be a difficult uh, game." He said, uh, "The pitch, he, the pitch is obly bubbly." Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the lads were like this, trying to keep a straight face when the gaffer's trying to give his uh, team talk. But, um, but, but to a man, we, we loved Ozzy. And, you know, players really grew. And you speak to any of them. They grew as pe people and players under Ozzy. But then, of course, it was a sad day when he was sacked. There were tears around the training ground. I remember driving away thinking, uh, what, what, where are we going from here? Who are we going to sign? What, what's going to happen with the club? Takeovers in the background. Uh, we are not doing great in the league at this point. No. Uh, we're in a bit of trouble. We need someone that can come in and turn the ship around, and obviously there was that someone. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about Chang, because it's part of the Magpie group, I knew what was happening. And KK was actually in, in, already ensconced in the ground to come out at the press conference at half past nine in the morning when Freddie Fletcher, the chief exec, was sent up to uh, Ozzy's house to give him the tin tack so that they would go down have the press conference and announce uh, KK. And Ozzy's such a lovely man. Freddie Fletcher went up, told him he was sad, and Ozzy Olivia's made him breakfast. I mean, he made, he made him breakfast. I mean, anybody else would have said, and hey, pal, Get on your bike, mate. He made him breakfast, which was a, a lovely, lovely touch. Freddie asked if he would leave the uh, curtains up because Freddie took away his clubhouse when, when Ozzy left. And he said, well, are you leaving those curtains? So he had them when he took off. Anyway, we digress. It was KK. Mm. First reaction to that, and how did it work out for you? Yeah, I heard it uh, on the radio, driving back to the house, and over, literally, I think it was going over the time bridge, and like we've signed Kevin Keegan. And wow, that was like Kevin, childhood hero, uh, posters on my bedroom wall. I remember my dad saying to me as a, when I was a youngster, I said, See him, Kevin Keegan. He said, that, that guy is, is a, he's a self-made player. Like he has made the best of himself that he could be. Watch his attitude, look his physique, everything about him, he's someone to emulate. And of course, was one of football's first millionaires and all of this. Um, he wasn't a natural uh, Gavin in terms of Gaza. No, it was no. just a yeah. natural. Yeah. He, and your son, which I might have guys more, yeah. you worked and worked yeah. and worked to make himself what he was. Yes. So, so a, a great hero, and um, and then to like it, for him to be manager. So immediately I was excited. The next day we went to the training ground. He pulled all the players uh, in front of him, and and this is what you need, and this is what Newcastle need now. They need they need someone that can come in, and to they need someone that can come in and command respect from the players, inspire the players. And, and make the players believe, make the players believe that they can do something at this moment in time that they probably thought they couldn't believe. And that's the art of great leadership, is to, is to be able to, I can make you believe something you don't even think you can be at the moment. And, and so he pulled us all together, and we're sitting there, he's only five foot six, he walks in, but he's got great presence, as you know. And he said, listen, and this is what I liked as well, he said, he said, if any of you want to leave this football club, he said, come see me afterwards, he said, and we'll arrange it. He said, but if you want to stay and you want to fight for this club, 
He said, we will survive this season. He said, and we will then take off. Just watch it happen. Now that's what you need, right? Oh. Immediately, you're like, okay. And, and, and that's kind of, it's inspiring, but it's got, a, it's got a tough line there because he's going to call out anyone who doesn't want to be at the club. If you don't want to be here, I don't want you here. Don't care how good you are. And, um, and, and so, like, I'm here. I'm inspired to get goosebumps just thinking about it. And, uh, and of course, Kevin and, uh, he's just a, was a great then a motivator of men. Bear in mind, he'd been in Marbella playing golf with Sean Connery for seven years. He hadn't really seen, no, he hadn't even seen a football match. Comes back to he's the only club he said he'd come back for. And um, knew how to motivate players. First game is uh, Bristol City at home. And uh, you've heard me tell the story, maybe a few of you have before, but uh, he's going round the, uh, the team in the, in the change room beforehand. I see him like having a word with David Kelly in the ear, having a word with Liam O'Brien, having a word with, with Lee Clark. And then he gets to me and uh, he says, he leans towards me, he says, you're the man today. He said, you are the man. He said, Bill Shankly, used to say to me, now Bill Shankly obviously, the great Liverpool oh. manager, treated Keegan like a son at Liverpool. He says, Shankly used to say to me, just go out there and drop hand grenades all over the field. In other words, just go out there and cause trouble, because everywhere you go, trouble will happen for the opposition. And I thought, oh, like, Shankly says that to Keegan, and now Keegan's saying that to me. Like, I went down that tunnel, I felt 10 foot tall, I ran all day, I didn't score, I made two goals, uh, we won, I think Dave Kelly got, got a couple, and uh, I always tell people, uh, I said, Keegan's a great motivator of men, he knows what to say to people to, to, to get the best out of them on, on the field, and, um, and a, a few years later when he got the England job, um, Paul, uh, Paul Scholes scored a hat-trick, it was against Poland scored a hat-trick uh, in, in, in the first game. And I read in the paper, uh, he said, Keegan's a great motivator of men. And I, I was thinking, yes, that's exactly what I was saying all those years. He's a great motivator of men. And I read on in the article, and Skull said, he said to me before the game, Bill Shankly used to say to me, go out there and drop hand grenades. And I was like, ah, oh. I thought I was special, but... Uh, hey, it works, man. Yeah, it works for different... You want to say to different people to get the best out of them, and that did, was Keegan. Did you realise, Governor, I would be interested to hear your slant on this, because Keegan was one of the most wonderful motivators yep. that I've known in Newcastle United, and Joe Hawkins exactly the same. Neither was a tactician. Yep. He wasn't a coach. He was a motivator, and he bought brilliantly. Yes. He, could, he could see talent and ball. Yeah. There was also another sign to KK, which was, if you cross him, you're dead. Yeah. Did you, did you see that and were you in awe or were players generally or don't cross the box? Yeah. So, so Kevin would say to us, I'll treat you like men until, un, unless you act like boys. He said, and then I'll treat you like boys. Um, he had a, a hard side to him that if he was crossed, so you probably know that, um, that, that Mickey Quinn did an article early on, oh. and uh, he said something to the, to the effect, Quinn, he said something to the effect, like, Keegan's so lucky if he fell in the tine, he'd come up with a, a, a salmon in his mouth, you know? It's just that he gets good luck, and uh, um, it came out. I mean, maybe Quinny said something to that effect, the headline wasn't the best for him, but Keegan called him in the office, and. 
and he just had the article behind him and said nothing. <laughs> he said nothing to him about the article. Obviously, Quinny's there and, and, and uh, seeing it behind him. And, and, and Quinny wasn't really used by, uh, uh, by Kevin. And I, I'm on Mickey Quinn. I loved playing with Quinn and learned a lot from him. He was a proper number nine. Anyway, his time with Newcastle was up and, and Kevin shifted him out. Um, even with myself, you know, I, I think all good managers, all good leaders, they must have an element of, yes, that, that motivation. Yes, that, that, you know, your players need to know you care about them. But there also needs to be a little bit of fear there. Absolutely. There has to be a little bit of fear, and Kevin did have that. And even though I remember myself, you know, one our promotion season, uh, he stuck me out wide, uh, and I didn't like to play out wide in that particular game. I mean, he could have played anywhere in that team and scored. It was that good. John Barris was behind me, and he kept pulling me back. Get back, Gavin. You've got to defend, and I want to get forward and score. And I, I had a bit of a hump, and uh, Kevin said something to the side, and I, I don't know what I said, and, and he went, you don't pull your socks up, you'll be off in a minute. And I was captain. And I was playing well, you know, I was scoring for fun. So he would have done it. He would have done it. And, and that's fair enough. He was the boss. And, and so you knew he was the boss. And so he, he had those, that side. As you say, not the, not the tactician as such. He got Derek Fazakli in there to do some good yes. stuff yeah. with the defense. And Faz was, you know, he was good in that respect. Terry Mack was a great buffer and a, 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 another motivator, someone that Kevin could rely on as loyal to him. And, uh, and we all wish Terry well at the moment, obviously, because of his illness, um, for sure. And, uh, but Kevin was good because he could, he had wisdom, so he could see how players played off each other and with each other in training. And then he would look and think, oh, I want to get Gavin and Lee Clark close together on the field. So I just move him slightly that way and him that way. And then he pulled me in. I talk about this in the book. I think great teams, uh, great businesses, great company, they have companies, they have harmony about them. They have balance. And we, and, and we had that in the promotion season, certainly. I'm, you might want to talk about the battle beforehand. Yeah. But, but we had this balance. And he pulled me in his office one day and says, look at my team. Look, when we get the goalkeeper gets it, rolls it out to Barry Venison, and then Lee Clark comes short, you come short, David Kelly goes in behind, we got Rob Lee over here. He said the movement is, is just incredible. So he, he knew that, he had that wisdom to put a team out on the field that blended together and, and was effective. So I would say that that was a, a big strength of Kevin's, though you can only deal with what you've got. And of course, when he first got to the club, it wasn't the greatest pool of players that he had to deal with, and so he had Absolutely. to get big killer. He got big kill Klein in, and that was a good boost for us. And he did what he needed to do to keep us up. Can I talk about those early days and the players that were at Newcastle when you were in the entertainers' time? Part of the wall, remember, with great affection, a gorgeous man, Paris and Jordy, and he certainly was a Jordy. Yes. Room, you room with him early, doesn't mm. you? Yes, yeah. Um, Jim Smith signed myself and Pavel uh, within a week of, e of each other. Um, and Pav, young goalkeeper, no one really knew him from the Czech Republic. We both stayed in the New Kent Hotel in Jesmond. Oh, I don't know yes. if you know that hotel. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, then, and I remember Pavel and, and just like this big giant of a guy, and he's, but just really humble. Just had that kind of quality that you can't teach people. Really, is that just that humility? 
and and so he was and then he was this good shot stopper but a little bit erratic in in the early days and 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 yet because of his humility you knew that he was going to be a learner and you knew that he could kind of do quite well of course in the years that were to follow who who knew how well he would do and what a a cult hero he'd be, he'd uh, become and uh, and so we roomed together a few times and we talked about other things in life you know and he was that kind of man um, and uh, of course I was in Canada uh, when I heard that you know he'd, he'd gone for that run and then he collapsed and Steve yeah. Wraith was keeping me in touch I was messaging with Steve and he, you know I uh, obviously was very concerned uh, and then the, the, the obviously to hear the news that he died it was just um, such a sad, sad moment because he was a he was he was a humble man with a big heart, and you know that it was a heart event that took him was was quite ironic. But uh, but the day that he pulled off the shirt when we got promotion and it, Pavel is a Geordie, oh, um, that that kind of was just a, a moment that, that fans will remember I here, here forever. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. As a goes for your son, I know you were essentially sent a midfield player, but you got forward and you scored a terrific amount of goals. During that period, you look at the development of the number nine, if you like. We started off with Ned Kelly, who scored a pile of goals, albeit perhaps in the second tier or yep. in the top tier. You then saw Andy Cole coming here, who went on to score 40 in one season, and then eventually, I mean, KK thought they were asking you to sell him at that time, yeah. and say the fans, trust me, and we'll get Ferdinand and Sheila. Yeah. Uh, it was a heck of a period, considering this was a number nine club, for number nines, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, as you say, starting with Dave Kelly, I mean, he was a, he was a, I loved play, playing with Ned, um, he was honest, he was fit, he would run in the channels, but he was good in the air, uh, but, very, but just very mobile. Um, and, and as you say, scored important goals and, and, and lots of them. Um, but, then, but then again, like what Kevin was good at is then moving on to the next level, to the next level, and of course Coley, had to bring in Coley. Andy Cole was razor sharp player and took him a few games to settle, but once he did, you know, the sky is the limit for Coley, but then you sell Andy Cole, where are you going to go from there? Well, you can only go Shearer or, uh, and, and Ferdinand, of course. Um, it, that was a ruthless side of KK, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, to sell Cole after he scored 40 goals yeah. and say, I'll eventually, and it wasn't the next day, but do better, and yeah. you get Ferdinand in and Shearer, mm -hmm. and with respect to Cole, who was magic of Manchester United. He certainly produced two more centre-forwards at Newcastle that were extra special. Yes, yeah, and, and that's what I talk about Kevin's wisdom. You know, you might say there are certain tactical things where you're making tactical decisions. There are greater tacticians, maybe, but that was a tactical move, if you like, even in the buying and the selling. Um, and that he had the magnetic personality to, to bring people to this club that were of the right ilk uh, in terms of their character. Uh, and their ability to, to make it happen on the field. And it was just a, it was just a golden era for the, for the club. Absolutely. Can I take you back to... Oh, we almost went to third division. Yeah. When, when he first came, we had to get the result in the last day. We did do, and then the next thing we do, we win promotion and your skipper and we have a wonderful, wonderful season. Can you take me through that season? The, I mean, 
it got off to all right. The promotion season? The promotion season. Yeah, first 11 games, wasn't it? We won. And, and the last of those 11 is we won at Mackenland, which, and I was there, and was that wonderful, or was that wonderful? Was, was yeah, of course. That, that was Liam O'Brien, Liam O'Brien's uh, wonderful free kick. <laughs> he's been dining out on that for ever since. He has, he he has still been dining, is, yeah. He yeah, still he is. still is. Yeah, no, he's he was a great lad, funny lad as well, Liam. Yeah. But um, yeah, which is a special season. A special season, and um, again, tactics of Keegan. By he gets Venison and Beresford and, and Bracewell and oh three more defensive players well yes. yeah but he knew that we were going to play football out from the back and we needed a basis from which our attacking players would flow um, we get off to a flyer he said to us the, the season before when you're struggling you know when you're playing in, in a relegation fight um, you're like every game it's a difficult game there's a heaviness coming up to the game and Kevin said, but when you're winning, you can't wait for the next game. You literally can't, it can't come quick enough. You want to get out there and take the next opposition on. And of course we get off to this flying start and we are steamrolling teams. Like they are not living with us. The football was just magnificent. Then after a few games, uh, we get Rob Lee, which was a masterstroke to get Rob Lee from Charlton. Seven, 700 grand? 700 grand. Absolute steal. Uh, and Kevin, because my dad was still at Charlton, you see, so he knew Rob Lee, and he knew Rob Lee was coming out of contract soon, and uh, Kevin said, what do you think of this Rob Lee at Charlton? And I said, get Rob Lee. He's got all-round great ability, and he's not reached his potential yet. Uh, my dad rates him highly. Get Rob Lee. Middlesbrough were interested in Rob Lee too. Middlesbrough were in the Premier League then. Lenny Lawrence was the manager who knew Rob Lee because of Charlton days. Oh, yes. Yeah, so Rob was talking to, to Middlesbrough and Kevin, who has this persuasive power, gets, key, gets Rob Lee in the office and know, knows Rob is a London boy. And Rob has been saying, you know, I like to get back to visit family in London uh, quite regularly. And, um, and so Kevin says, Oh, well, it would be better for you to sign for Newcastle because Newcastle's further south than Middlesbrough and you'll get to London quicker. And Rob went, oh, really? He said, OK, then I'll sign. So he ends up signing and, of course, a combination of Kevin's persuasive power and Rob's bad geography led to the signing of, of what I think and many would say is the best pound-for-pound -pound signing that Keegan made. Absolutely. And, and it was the same for Rob Lee because and he Rob, became yeah. international. Yeah, he became an England international, and I mean, he, he came into that team and he got better with with every every game that, that he played. And uh, you know, just a down, as you know, Rob's just a down to earth uh, lad. But to say, you know, Southerners don't like it up here in uh, Newcastle. I mean, me, Rob Lee, it's rubbish. Um, he loved it here, and you know, absolutely. Rob's a he's a Geordie. I mean, how? When that season ended with promotion, with the huge excitement on Tyneside, with the rest of the country realising something special is happening up there. Mm. What, as Skipper, as somebody that had come and been in at the birth of all that, how did that register with you? I mean, how did you suddenly think, 
We were just ripping up the division and we were the talk of the town. Like, you know, you, you go down south, you go to West Ham, you go to Charlton, you go to wherever. And they feared us and we'd go on the field. And there was a, literally a time uh, where I was playing for Newcastle that I felt, you give me the ball, I, I'll, do, I'll score or I'll make a goal. And that's a great feeling as a footballer to when you're at the peak of your career and you get the ball and, and you know, you can just imagine like getting the ball at St. James's Park and you pick up the ball and the crowd just starts to lift and there's like this roar kind of thing and you know, gives you goosebumps and you just feel like you can just float on air. Um, that was the feeling I had, but all the players began to, to have. And, uh, and what Kevin did quite well is, I would get headlines, David Kelly would get headlines because scoring goals. Course, but then the next week, he would say, John Beresford, fantastic player, future maybe England international, Barry Venison. So he would profile all the other players as well so that all the players were actually getting the credit that they deserved and not, sure. and not just the guys that were, were scoring the goals. That led to then a really good team spirit where, where we were fighting for one another. Um, so, so there's the thing, you, you, you need to have the man uh, at the helm who can inspire, who can make you believe, who can bring players in that will blend together and create a team spirit. But then those players need, we policed it ourselves. Training sessions, Kevin didn't have to do much. We went out there on the training field, there was no way the standards were allowed to be dropped because we wouldn't let each other drop the standards. Now, I can imagine what that's been like for the last few years, yeah? Some players not really bothered or not really putting it all in. Or get, that just would not have happened because we would not have let that happen. But that's what you create, and that's what hopefully you, you, know, you want to be able to get back to at Newcastle. You get that going here, then you're going to have a team that's going to you know, win things or compete at, 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 at the top. So um, it was a, a special time, and other, other teams were looking, and other big clubs were saying, these players at Newcastle are, are, are top-notch. The interesting thing from my point of view, at the time you were probably at the height of your powers, we, we come up and, and, and it worked so well, the whole town was buzzing, Keegan was buzzing, we were buzzing, fans were buzzing, and you left because you had to for, for personal reasons, and you then, thank goodness, went on a, a fabulous career with Chelsea. And um, how difficult was it to leave a project which was obviously only going in one direction, which was that way, the Newcastle United project, and uh, in how much was there inevitably, well, this is the way my life and our lives got to go, yeah. and it went terrifically well. We've got to say, Chelsea, big, big club, what are we going to find out tomorrow how big, yeah. big club it is? Mm. And you played the FA Cup final, European Cup and this Cup, Sunny, etc., etc. And can you give us a rough idea without being too personal what that change meant to you? And was there any difficulty in making that decision? Guys? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, I'm no problem. Uh, be, making it personal, I've, I've talked about it very openly in my book. Um, the year that we got promotion, Amanda fell pregnant with our first child. 
which is to, to Jake, um, and uh, it, it was amazing, you know, like uh, with the with the with the promotion run was like the pregnancy grew, you know, early early flutters, the the kicking in the belly at the at the end of that Le the Leicester game at, at home, the Jake's literally kicking every ball inside. They're really ready to come out. Two weeks after that game, she goes into labour, and it's a very difficult labour. Forty eight hours, uh, very hard for her. Forceps delivery, epidural, um, and then Jake is is delivered, and uh, we're just relieved. You know, I'm looking at a boy or a girl. Oh, it's a boy, um, and then he cried, and as he put his arms out to the side, I saw that he was missing uh, a third of his uh, two thirds of his forearm, so his right hand. So Jake has a he has a third of his his right forearm, and it was such a shock because we had one scan only in those days, so we didn't know. So after all of that trauma, uh, then we have the shock of this. And then they're doing all tests, because with limb deficiency, there can be other issues, brain, heart, lungs. And you're, it's amazing how grateful you can be. It's just a hand in the end. Um, and with our family being in London and my wife's mother being down there, Kevin, Kevin was ringing up, how's everything? And he knew what was sort of going on, and I was keeping him informed, Kevin Keegan. And, and we were talking and saying, I said to Kevin, look, it might be that we, we may need to move back to London to be close to my mother-in-law and, and family. This has been quite traumatic. Kevin was great. And here's a side, you know, football, great motivator, this great leader, done everything he's done for this town and football club. But as a human being, showed great compassion to, to, to me and Jeez. Amanda. Great compassion. He's, yeah. he, he said, look, I don't want you to leave. He said, I'm bringing in Peter Beardsley. He said, you, Beardsley. He said, Andy Cole. He said, it will be a good combination in there. He said, but I know if you're not at your happiest off the field, he said, you won't play at your, at your best on the field. He said, I'll tell you what, I won't outprice you in the market. Um, and he was as fair as that. Within a month, Glenn Hoddle, who'd been interested in me when he was at Swindon a year before, um, he got the Chelsea job and his first phone call was to ask me if I would join, and uh, it was 1.25 million, big fee then. I think Shearer had just gone for 2.75 or something like that to yeah. Blackburn, so the big fee. Um, and it was just the right timing, and, uh, and I said yes to Glenn, another great manager, good, good football mind, someone I could grow under. Someone, Kevin said to me, he said, you'll learn more from playing with Glenn Hoddle in training than anything else. He said he's a genius. Um, but it was, uh, it was bittersweet, you know, because obviously leaving here, where we loved it so much, uh, leaving the football field where we got promotion to the Premier League, and, and you know, I think so, I, I saw one of those, you know, you get the um, end of season goals roundups, they, they play the old stuff on YouTube, and I, I saw the first game that I captain Newcastle, I believe, it was West Ham at home in that promotion season. And you see me walking out the tunnel, and uh, I've got the ball in one hand. And, and in those days, it was only like a bit of tape around your, around your that was the captain's armband. A bit of tape around the, uh, around the uh, shirt, and uh, it pans in on my face as I go out the tunnel. And I just do, do this, I can see, see my, I breathe in as I'm going out, and the, the, the roar just surrounds me. And, and I'm think, I just think, at that moment, as a footballer, I'm thinking, it doesn't get better. I'm captain of Newcastle, you know? And so that, that moment, yeah. 
that, that summed it up, what it was, was for me. And, and I'll just tell you, just to maybe as we're finishing on Newcastle, so the, the, the season uh, before, um, we, we, we escaped relegation. Uh, um, we played Leicester away. We won 2 1, I scored. Um, we, 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 <laughs> we stayed up. And uh, my granddad Tom, you know, I told you about my granddad Tom, Geordie Tom, um, he'd had a stroke. It was the first of, of several strokes. Um, and uh, I, he was in hospital, so he didn't make the game. And so I, I took him my number eight shirt. Didn't even have the names on the back in those days. I took him the number eight shirt um, to the hospital bed and gave it to him uh, after the game. And he didn't really, couldn't really say too much, but there was this tear in his eye. And, uh, and he held the shirt. And a few years later, he did die of a stroke. And uh, my dad gave me back the shirt with a little letter, a little note, and said, your, your granddad, he said, he never washed that shirt till the day he died. Because he, he said he sweated blood for his thing. And I think that sums up probably the family. Yeah, it sums up the family connection that I had here, the way that I was then able to translate that to my own game, the relationship I had with the fans. And, um, and, and, and so that even though it finished maybe not the way that I'd have wanted it. Um, it was still the close of a great chapter in my in my life and football career. Absolutely, and Dad told you sweat for you guys. My, my granddad, okay? my granddad said sweat blood yeah, for their team. Granddad, yes, yeah. If if I may, before we wound up with the, the Chelsea episode, the book itself, which is why you are here tonight, from pitch to pulpit, which is quite an extraordinary and inspiring book, um, taking. And you deal with many aspects, whether it's uh, racism, mental health, etc., etc. But looking first at the Christianity, ball, which is so, so important in your life. And the interesting thing for me, looking at it from where I was standing, was that um, you weren't a particularly religious family. No. Um, and you discovered it when mum took you to church uh, and to see uh, the minister who invited you to the youth do. And can you tell me, and it is a fun story because you're a footballer at the time, so you're, you're not Jack the Lad, but you're perceived to other people yeah. as a big difference to ultimate, isn't it, mm. to, to so many men, mm. so, to so many girls. Sure. What, what was your feeling at the time, at, mm. at, at that moment? So I was, I was uh, 18 years old, living at home. I've achieved the schoolboy dream. Everything the world says will make you happy. I've, I've got the great job, the, the, the career ahead, a bit of money, a bit of fame. And, and even though I'd done that, followed in my dad's footsteps, had that, um, because football was my god, if I was playing well, I was up. If I was playing badly, I was down. As I say, I'm 18, living at home at the time. I'm thinking, wow, you know, is there the greatest of happiness in this? Um, so I'm questioning um, at this point, and then I did follow my mum to church one night. Uh, she, I said, I'll just keep you company. And, I, and the minister said, would you fancy coming back to a youth meeting afterwards? And I said, yeah, no problem. And I pulled up to the youth meeting that night um, in my uh, Ford Escort XR3i. Remember those cars? Proper 1980s sports car. Look it up. There's a few people nodding. A few of you look very vacant, the younger ones. Look it, it was, up. It was flash. It was flash. It was a nice sports car. I had the hair to match, long. 
thick, a leather jacket and tight jeans. And I get out of that. Hey, 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 that was cool at the time, boy. The only, the only thing I've got left of that is the tight jeans. <laughs> no, the hair's gone, the leather jacket's gone, the car's gone. But um, so I get out of the car and I walk into that uh, meeting. It's half a dozen other young people my own age. But I have the one that's in the in crowd. I've got everything, you know, the world says will make you happy. I'm the footballer, I've got the car, I've got the career, I've got the bit of money. Um, but, but when they spoke about their faith and when they spoke about Jesus Christ, um, there was a joy and reality they had that I didn't have. And, and then it was just over the, the next couple of weeks of just hearing what the minister was saying from the Bible about who Jesus is and what he came to do that I realised that my greatest problem wasn't to gain the approval of the crowd on a Saturday, but to be in a right relationship with God. And he'd made that possible through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I became a Christian when I was 18. And it was an amazing thing because suddenly uh, football wasn't God anymore. Jesus is God and yet football is really important. But it freed me because I was then not the sum of my performances on a Saturday anymore. Uh, it was more than that. My identity lay elsewhere. My hope lay elsewhere. And then it enabled me to be the best kind of footballer I could be. Um, and deal with ups and downs better. How difficult was that, Gavin? Because looking at it from the outside, the football world, perhaps especially in those days, when you come up to Newcastle, for example, which is when I knew, etc., etc., it wasn't the easiest thing to necessarily say, I'm a religious guy. And that takes Courage, and we've had so many other things that have come out since that needs courage within this sport. Mm. How difficult, uh, how easy, how did you not care what the reaction was? I'm talking about the aggression, yeah, I'm talking sure. about fans. Right? Mm. How, and you see players these days that are crossing themselves yeah. on the pitch, etc., etc. But it, it, it was a different situation. And you handle it expertly because you can be absolutely took off. Mm. How difficult or easy was it for you to put the two together? I, I was honest with people in the dressing room, straight at QPR and, and the lads here at Newcastle about my faith. Um, and and uh, and there's a bit of Mickey taking, you know, when you work with a bunch of men, there's a, they'll take the Mickey out of anything, wear a new pair of shoes or a new tie or anything that's different. But then I think they uh, they look and they watch your life to see footballers are not stupid. You know, you you you're on the field of battle with them. That your character is laid bare. They know if you're you know having your people on or not. And they watch your life and and to see if there's an authenticity to it. And it's amazing. I had some uh, I had some amazing conversations with players you'd never think would ask about uh, Christianity uh, here at Newcastle uh, on the team coach or, or what have you. Um, so I, I, I think that, yeah, that, that side of things, you know, handled reasonably well. Maybe it could have been better at times, but uh, there, wa there was one time where I did an, I talk about this in the book, I did an article, I think it was the Sunday Sun, and they were talking about my faith, my Christian faith, in the article. And that I was just saying in the, in the article that... Um, Ultimately, you know, uh, my, my, my identity is, 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 is in, Christ, in Jesus Christ, my hope lies elsewhere, and the headline on the Sunday was, why I can never be one of the lads 
by Gavin Peacock, and I'm catching the team. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I did not really mean it to come across like that at all. Um, and That's a few, how it was then, or misunderstanding. Misunderstanding, yeah. bit of banter from the guys in the dress room, hopefully it was cleared up. But, uh, but yeah, and I was a young guy as well, I'm in my 20s, and you know, I, didn't, I wasn't able to, to articulate things the, the way that I can now in my 50s. That's why as well I chose to write the book when I was, when I became now, 50, no, yeah. So there's a certain level of maturity you have at 50 where you can reflect and, and, and integrate your faith and life. And, and my book, really, I describe it as a story of life in all of its complexities that's set against the backdrop of the beautiful game but with a bit of a floodlight of the Christian faith on it, so that it's a human interest story. There's all the stories of football. I take you on the field with me. Uh, I take you into cup finals, into dressing rooms, and, and all of that that goes on around it. Um, but but there's, like, there's stories of life. There's about suffering. It's about uh, losing and, and winning and, and racism and mental health. And that means that it, all of you, it's... It, these are all the issues that touch all of us. And so then along the way, there's that, just that little bit of light that I'm shining. Uh, it's not a preachy book, but it's just a little bit of light that I'm shining on each of those issues. So that I think I've found feedback so far that it's a different kind of biography that football fans can enjoy, but all people in all walks of life, sure. men, women, young, old. And that's what I wanted from the book because really, I think sometimes when footballers write books, um, it can be great for fans to read. You love that kind of, oh, the big games, the big games. But it can also be, um, there's a distance there. It's something you'll never re be able to quite realise because it's a different world. But, but I'm writing it in a way as, well, we're just all the same, really, and we're all going through this life, and everyone suffers, and everyone has issues that they're dealing with. And, and, and I'm trying to just say that, that football is just the backdrop of this and that, that the kind of there is great hope to be found and there is greater glory in life than football fame and fortune. Can I ask you, because I think, Gavin, what is fascinating for the ordinary guy, and I'm including me in this, who admires what you've done in life, but then knows the sort of fame, adulation, and money that was involved, not just on you being a superstar footballer, but then going on, having a terrific life in the media, as Alan Shearer has had, as an example, yeah. after a career, so you still remain in the spotlight, you're still making dough, you're still in the beautiful game. Yeah. I mean, you had a heck of a, a career with Marcelino. You, know? mm. you were in your height as well, if you like, on that side of the coin, yes. and walked away from it and mm. become what you are now, and you're in Calgary, and you're a pastor. It's quite amazing, it's quite staggering, and I mean that being in awe from sitting here talking to you. How I know the answer to this before asking as much how difficult is it? It wasn't quite obviously because it was choice. Mm. But people would see it as yeah. difficult. Yeah. How how did you equate all that? And was it a matter of just finding the ultimate piece if you like? Sure. I loved working on the BBC match of the day and it went better than I could have imagined because it's a pretty small squad of, of pundits they have and you know I wasn't Alan Shearer retiring I didn't have all those England caps I wasn't that profile I remember when Shearer came 
uh, to, to, to the Beeb, and he's just straight on all the top programs because he's Shearer. And people were saying, oh, he, he's not saying enough, you know. Because, well, he's not saying enough because for all of his career, he had to be very guarded oh, with yes. what he said. But now, as you see, he's, so he's, quali he's quality. He's a quality guy. He's a quality... His, his comments are always spot on. Um, so I had to work hard at my career, and, but I loved to try and uh, bring insight from the game to people in the living room. Football fans are more educated than they've ever been because they see everything, they read everything. So you don't want to state the obvious all the time, like, oh, you know, the boy did good, he knocked it in and the lad knocked it in the net. Well, you can see that. Um, I want to give you insight as to why that happened and we'll go back. And so I really enjoyed that and it was going very well. But, and I've never, as I say, a Christian since 18, but never had a sense that I was going to go into church ministry or leadership till around 2006. World Cup in Germany, my career's on the, on really on the up. I'm getting, I'm turning down work at this stage because I've got so much on. Amanda got quite ill, had a kidney infection, was in hospital for a couple of weeks and, you know, it was a bit dicey a couple of times and as is often the case, trials and suffering kind of recalibrate your focus a little bit. And at that stage, I just started thinking, well, you know, maybe there was a sense there, maybe some, you know, uh, maybe church leadership is for me. And uh, so I spoke to the leaders that I knew in the church. They said they identified certain gifts. They were going to give me some opportunities to exercise those gifts in terms of some teaching or preaching in the church. So I'm doing that. I'm going to Cambridge University and doing Old Testament and New Testament studies with all the guys that are going to be vicars and ministers. All they want to do is talk to me about football. They just want to say, oh, they were going, oh, what you said at the weekend or match of the day. And I'm just like, I'm here to actually study. But anyway... Um, and I knew then I'm going to give it up. And I said to a man, I'm going to give up the second dream career here to, to spend some time to prepare for church ministry. How about, I could do it in England, but my profile is so high now with the telly, TV work. Yeah. What about if we go away to anonymity where people won't care about my career and they would just really hear what I had to say from, from the Bible and it'd be a good life test for us. Our kids were 15 and 12 at the time, so difficult ages. And I, yeah, I, I dropped that bombshell to the BBC and they, they you know, thought it was a surprise. But uh, 2008, I did the Euros, Austria and, and Switzerland. And then we flew to Calgary, Alberta, and we've been there ever since. I did a three-year master's degree, thought we would come back, had some offers to come back here. Uh, got a, another offer in Calgary, and so I'm an associate pastor, so kind of like, think, assistant manager, uh, a church in uh, Calgary. And uh, amazingly, doors have opened for me, and I speak now around the world. I travel to Africa, China, uh, lots of parts of the States, um, and, I, and I get to do some of this stuff, tell my story, life story. I, I, I teach a lot on uh, the family and, and raising up men and, and children in the home. Uh, being a good husband and father, and uh, and obviously preaching in church, and it's one of those. It doesn't get the headlines, but it's an amazingly rewarding thing because you're you're actually dealing with people in the highs of their lives, you know, like weddings and and, and great celebrations, and then in the lows of their lives where there's where there's death, where there's suffering, and you're shepherding and, and walking through with them, and uh, and so it's dealing with people's souls, and and that has eternal value, and so it really is a a very uh, rewarding, um, very been a hard 10, 12 years, but a very rewarding time too. Back before we finish the football, they're feeding me with.
I mean, what a, what a career, yeah. FA Cup final. When you played Manchester United in the FA Cup final, you scored along the way against Man United, yeah. weren't you, before the final. Yep. And hit the bar in the final. In the final. When you might have changed the yeah. course of the game, if that had gone in. Yeah. yeah, it was a great Manchester United team. Cantona and uh, Mark Hughes up front, and Giggs and Kanchelskis, Keane and Ince, and... Uh, and so on, and I'd scored, we did the double over them during the uh, season, 1-0 home and away, I scored both you goals, scored and in the cup final we were doing well in the early stages, and I hit a volley going over Schmeichel's head, thought this has got to be in, and Peacock scores again, Chelsea 1-0 up, we'll win the cup, and it hit the crossbar, and just, just those just an inch lower and it would have gone in and who knows then the inches can be the, is the thing between you know success and, and and defeat at times and they went on to win it three years later Roberto Di Matteo playing for Chelsea against Middlesbrough in the cup final yes. burst through hits yes. the same crossbar I did one inch lower it goes in Chelsea win and silverware flows yeah it is that sort of difference yeah. Just before we go on to the current situation, if I may mention, because this fascinated me, when you left Chelsea, you went on record, if I'm right, of saying you left Chelsea, there was a change of manager, Wood Hull had come in, and he didn't bother speaking to you. Yep. And this just resonated with me, because in Newcastle, you did exactly the same with Alan Shearer and Rob Lee, and... Um, was very unsuccessful and got tin tacked after Sunderland. Mm. But that must have that must have hurt you and made you think I've got to get out of here. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really have a choice. Rude was a, a brilliant footballer. I mean, it's oh. undeniable. Like when he signed, when it was a masterstroke that uh, Hoddle got him, he was magnificent. Um, he was this great uh, athlete. Uh, he wasn't even at his peak when he came to us, but he, he, he could hold off two or three players at once. Every decision he made on the field, it, he did it with class and it was good. When he became a manager, when he became, who, me? Do you, you want me to shut up? Oh, okay. <laughs> I know, I'm kidding. When, when uh, Rude became a manager, it changed. Um, and so, from being my teammate, all of a sudden, so you come in on a match day and Ruda just have the team initials on the, on the board over there and you might have played one week and then your initials, you weren't even on the bench the, ne the next week and this was happening during the pre-season and I thought, and I'd, bear in mind I've been captain at Chelsea, played most games for, for the first three seasons I was there under Hoddle and suddenly I'm seeing this and so I thought, I'd better go see Rude here. I was in the last year of my career. I said, look, Rude, um, I said, I'm, I'm coming into the last year of my career. At the end of this year, I'll be at free transfer. I said, it doesn't look like I'm going to be in your plans. I'm willing to be, a, you know, the way things are going. It's a squad game and all of this. And Zola's coming in and all these good players. If it's a squad thing, I'm willing to fight for my place. Um, but if I'm not in your plans, maybe we should get that straight now. And, you know, maybe the club gets money for me now and I move on. And he seemed okay. And then he just never spoke to me again. And he, I trained with the kids. I trained with the reserves. There was me, David Rowcastle, John Spencer, Rocky Rowcastle. Couldn't have met a nicer man. Oh. 
Um, and the way he, he was treated, the way I was treated, I just knew the writing was on the wall. So to the point where Dennis Wise actually went to Rude's house to say, you need to actually communicate better with the players. So you've got Keegan and the great man management, and then you've got Rude and not good man management. Brilliant player, but not good man management. So it was a shame that they let, it ended that way. And so I wasn't surprised when, and I keep in touch with Rob Lee, I wasn't surprised when the Rob Lee thing came about and I was watching the Shearer thing and I go, you've taken on Shearer here, it's a different kettle of fish, you, you won't win. Yeah, you won't win that one. And, uh, and of course then that, that came, to, came to pass. Now, if I saw Rude, would I shake his hand? Of course now. It was just, but it was one of those things that wasn't right at the time, and uh, yeah, it meant me leaving Chelsea. Fabulous, fabulous player, but he was well named. He was rude. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he just didn't. Anyway, right up to date, and then a couple of questions for you. Newcastle United currently, you've come back home. Sure. I know you, you were on the boat for us. You're an adopted journey. You're back home, and we love you, and we're glad you're here. Tomorrow you're going to a game which is Newcastle League Chelsea. I can't think of a better game for you to go to. Uh, we're in the middle of transition with a takeover which has gave us all hope again after 14 years of living down the pitch shop in midnight. Can I, can I ask you, sitting here tonight, going to the game tomorrow, your feeling about perhaps, only perhaps, mm. we might go back to the entertainers? To the entertainers. Well, I hope. I mean, I was here at a turning point, right? There was a takeover oh, that happened, and uh, things weren't going so well on the field. And could fans have even imagined, uh, you know, going to those entertainer days? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I am very, very hopeful. Um, you know, the, the, the Ashley had to go, and it was on the cards for a long time, and just people were thinking it might never happen because it oh. should have happened several times before. Bleeding the club dry. Uh, the new owners, it, it, I, I hope, obviously there's the money, now that's important, clearly, yeah. look at what happened with Chelsea. Yeah. Um, that's very important, but, but of course you have to get the right man at the helm. And uh, they will. Sorry? And they will. Yeah, and they will. Um, and then that right man, combined with the director of football or whoever, has got to bring in the, in, in the right players. And, and so you've got a twofold thing, because this is a going to be a difficult season, right? It's not going to be an easy ride up the league. It's the most so terrifying part is now. Is now. So you, in the transfer window, what you got to spend? Is it 70 million? I'm not sure. Uh, you've got to get players in that are going to hit the ground running to keep the, t the, 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 the team up. And then with a long view to rebuilding. And I think, personally, it's a, it's a rebuilding that needs to happen through the whole club through the, the whole club, right down to, you know, training ground facilities, yeah. uh, little things, you know, when, you, when I think back to turning points where I was here at Newcastle or I was at Chelsea, it was the little things that the bosses did, like, think of, I can think of Glenn Hoddle at, at uh, Chelsea, he, we used to eat biscuits and tea after training, big pot of tea, middle of the dressing room, Hobnobs, digestives. You were on a biscuit rotor. Dennis Wise would ring you up. Precock, it's Tuesday. Make sure you're bringing good biscuits or you'll be on a double shift next week. 
and we'd be doing all our good training and diving in Timbit. Coddle's gone, no, no. He says, everyone stays, we get a chef in, and he starts feeding the players properly, even educating players on diet. He pulled money into the training field. He got the showers sorted out. Little things behind the, the scenes that are crucial to actually then, uh, I mean, I'm, my cousin tells me, that, is it the ice bars they're still having them in? Wheelie bins. Wheelie bins. <laughs> <laughs> ice bars in the wheelie bin. I mean, well, there you go. That can't be. It can't be so. So those kind of things. And then I would even say, you know, building right from the roots, even with the kids and the uh, and that, and getting a thread of people at the club who know the club. Even if, let's say, for instance, it might not be at all. Let's say you have someone like a Warren Barton, and then let's say they've got their coaching badges and they've got some talent. And you bring them in at some level. Now, it might not be that they're first-team coach, sure, but they're sure. in and around the ground. They're in and around, the t and you get that kind of black-and-white heartbeat going. I think that would be very important, alongside them bringing in that man that can kind of spur it on Tim. in the front. Before we finish, any questions there? The guy here yes, straight away. Yes, sir, shout out the few Just touch on the straight away there. When you bring KK back, just for a little bit. The gentleman's asking, just in case you couldn't hear, whether you would bring KK back. Yes. The feeling, it's bigger back than they kept with Gandhi again. Yeah, it, I'm biased, right? So, yeah, I'm biased. I mean, I haven't spoken to Kevin for years, but I mean, it would be clearly a popular move uh, initially. Would it be the right move long term? I don't know. You'd have to speak no, to. It would be long term. Right? Yeah. To, to, be around, to be around the club for sure, in some form. Mm. Mm. I, Personally, personally, I would love KK to be an ambassador in the way that I'm sure would be an ambassador. Yeah. I don't want him to manage Newcastle United anymore because the wonderful days have gone. That was yesterday, today's today, my love to tomorrow. But ambassador, both of them, absolutely, because they were threatened cautiously by Ashley. Yes, sir. Hello, Gavin. Can you tell me your thoughts after crew 3 0 down when you are 4 3 up and you got the hat trick? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> funny, funny you should say that. You remember that, Gavin remembers that, and I looked it up, and then I remember that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Go on. Well, a hat trick for, for New, a hat trick for Newcastle coming back from, and it was a, it was a, the other thing is it was a true hat trick, right foot, left foot, and a header. That's a perfect hat trick. Yes, gentlemen, down here before we finish, yes, sir. All we need to do is get people surrounded around the club, like yourself, like Shira, like all the other players that understand the club, mm. know what it means to yep. the coordination. That's what we need now for to bring unity back to the club yeah. and get it going again. You, you do need that as well because more, more than ever, with clubs in general, there's a sense of a loss of history. I think we've, we've you know, I'm talking broadly in cultural terms. There's a rewriting of history going on. We're forgetting the past. We're forgetting what made Britain Britain, for instance, in, in many ways. Um, and it's happening at clubs as well, and especially where, where players are coming from all over the world. They don't really understand necessarily the history of Newcastle. So then having that continuity with those around the, the club that do know it, that do get the heartbeat, that do understand, that helps educate those players. And they begin to, to catch that. Then it becomes 
uh, a contagious thing. Um, and so that, that's one of the key things. And with Newcastle, some people will say, well, it's the same with every club, but yeah, I mean, there is, it's more than, it's more than even on, on the Saturday. It's about, it's about the people, it's about uh, the city, it's about a sense of identity, it's about uh, coming together, and it's about a hope of glory. And you need to get that if you're going to get Newcastle. If you do get that as a player and as a manager, you've got, you've got the heartbeat, then you'll start to produce different things on the field. And from my own per personal point of view, maybe I'll have a little chat with Amanda Stabley or whoever, some of the you know, other owners tomorrow, club chaplain. Could be on the cards for me. Club, club chaplain and then, and then midfield coach. Do like a bit of both, yeah? Attacking midfield. Get them mid we need to get more goals from midfield. We've, we've got the future of the club there in one. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been told we've won well over the time that we're supposed to keep us up here. May I say, before you put your hands together, um, I'm only saying it on behalf of you all and on behalf of me because basically I'm a fan like everybody else. It is a, priv a privilege and it is uplifting after what we've gone through to talk to somebody that means so much in the history of this magnificent club. Hands together, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.